The following sermon is from the Westminster Pulpit, extending the worship ministry of Westminster Presbyterian Church, Lancaster, Pennsylvania. We are a local congregation of the Presbyterian Church in America. Please contact us for permission before reproducing this message in any format. The following sermon is from the Westminster Pulpit, extending the worship ministry of Westminster Presbyterian Church, Lancaster, Pennsylvania. We are a local congregation of the Presbyterian Church in America. Please contact us for permission before reproducing this message in any format. going to read Luke 22:63 through 71. Listen please to God's word. The men who were guarding Jesus began mocking and beating him. They blindfolded him and demanded, "Prophesy, who hit you?" And they said many other insulting things to him. At daybreak the council of the elders of the people, both the chief priests and teachers of the law met together. And Jesus was led before them. If you are the Christ, they said, tell us. Jesus answered, if I tell you, you will not believe me. And if I asked you, you would not answer. But from now on, the Son of Man will be seated at the right hand of the mighty God. They all asked, are you then the Son of God? And he replied, you are right in saying, I am. Then they said, why do we need any more testimony? We have heard it from his own lips. This is God's holy word. Oxford professor and biologist Richard Dawkins has received a lot of press in recent years as one of the rather articulate spokesmen for a new brand of militant atheism. You may not have heard his name, but others of you probably know it well. It occurs to me, especially encountering Mr. Dawkins, that it's easier to get to be a professor at Oxford these days than it used to be. I would stick to biology if I were he. You don't seem to have to know a lot about theology to write a book that sells a lot of copies. Just make claims that are so outrageous, whether backed up by anything or not, that they will stimulate sales. Dawkins' book, if you wish to examine it, is called The God Delusion. Others he's written, but this is the one I'm interested in right now. And in it, Dawkins says that to believe in any form of a God is, in his words, to commit intellectual high treason. But then he goes on to say that to believe in the God of the Bible is worst of all. Because according to Dawkins, this God, the Bible's God is, I quote, a petty, unjust, 
unforgiving, control freak, a vindictive, bloodthirsty, woman-hating, homophobic, racist, megalomaniacal, and malevolent bully. Reminds me of the old days on the playground. You know, sticks and stones may break my bones, but names don't particularly hurt me, not if you can't back them up with something. And yet, with such words as these, a puny man from the perch of an Oxford professorship sits in judgment on God and condemns him, while deluded, I believe Mr. Dawkins is, by his own intellectual arrogance. But people did the same thing on the night of Jesus' arrest. Their minds were made up, and they, too, impugned him with all kinds of insulting words. They, in fact, subjected him to the most shocking kinds of abuse even before he went to Pilate, and you remember was given the whip at Pilate's demand that cat-of-nine-tails had laid his back open and sometimes killed a man. Before that, he was subjected to this that we read about in Luke 22 and 63 and following. Here, Jesus was judged guilty. Their law was completely discarded. Much of what they did that night and the next morning, by the way, was entirely illegal. Violence was let off its leash as if you had held your pit bull back and suddenly snapped the snap and let him go. And their brutal mockery simply boiled over at this prisoner. Here we have a scene of our Savior, just as Isaiah predicted he would be, despised and rejected by men, a man of sorrows, well acquainted with grief. And Isaiah said he would be like one from whom men hide their faces. He would be so despised, and we would esteem him not. When I think of scenes of horrible cruelty from which we want to just hide our faces and, and not look, I suppose I always go back to the atrocities of the Nazis in World War II. If you've ever been to any of the several great museums that are dedicated to this, I've not been to the one in Washington, D.C., but I've been to Yad Vashem in Israel. And I wanted to walk out. In fact, I wanted to run out. I didn't want to stay in that building and confront the things that I had to see. But I think of that, and then I look at my Savior in this condition, and I want to turn my head away. I, I want to say, do I have to look on this? Certainly this is just the abnormal behavior of some soldiers gone berserk in their cruelty. I don't have to be bothered to look at this, do I? I believe the implication of the Scripture is we can't look away because this is about us, and this was because of us. These soldiers are representatives of mankind. It was for me that the face of Jesus was smashed repeatedly by a soldier's fist. It was for me and for you that he was ridiculed and spat upon and it was for all of us as he silently endured this hell on earth, even if it was only for a couple of hours. We shouldn't avert our gaze, because here is mankind beginning to put God on trial. 
and their sentence against him is already decided. We know that this was just the beginning, that Annas, the former high priest, first had a hearing with Jesus. Interesting little political arrangement there. Annas had had been the high priest, and then his son-in-law Caiaphas was given the office, but you're very clear in the Bible that that they remained partners, and, and Caiaphas didn't do very much without consulting Annas, the older man. And then, of course, having decided what they had to do, They said, well, we've got to get Pilate involved. We've got to have official stamps on this because we intend for him to die, and Rome has to approve. And all the way in the hearings and and Pilate's own trial and so on, especially before they got to Pilate, there were blatant illegalities, laws being cast aside by people who were guardians of the law. We call this a kangaroo court. I don't know if you children know that phrase or that, what that means. You picture a kangaroo as kind of a, maybe a little bit ridiculous animal. A kangaroo court is, is a court where there's no law is really operating. No procedures are being observed, where the verdict has already been made up, and they're just going through the motions to somehow arrive at a conclusion they've determined to do. But the thing I always marvel about, whether we're reading Luke or the other Gospels, is who's in charge. You have a sense that the prisoner, I assume Jesus was manacled most of this time. I assume there probably was a chain or something that wouldn't let him run. A soldier probably held it. And it wasn't as if he could just do what he wanted physically. And yet, you sense the whole time that Jesus, the prisoner, is basically controlling these events. And that they're happening by his permission. And as he says things or turns the conversation, he steers it to God's own ends. The wonder is that in the end of it, the preeminent reason for his conviction was based on who he is. He was sentenced to death for the indisputably clear fact of him being God. That's what he was guilty of being God. Let's look at the trial of God here. In the first place, verses 63 to 65 of Luke 22 bring us face to face with divine majesty in abject misery. The physical nature of what was happening is first emphasized. Hours before he he got into the hands of Pilate, even before those crown of thorns were jammed on his head or the nails were driven into his flesh, Luke tells of a wretched hazing of uncontrolled cruelty that assaults him here. Men guarding Jesus began mocking and beating him. It's a favorite question of the philosophers and theologians, the question, can God suffer? You'll see that question discussed in theological journals or various books. Can God suffer? Well, there have been many who've answered that question in their own way and their philosophy and said, well, of course not. How could God suffer? The Greeks said that without any equivocation. Zeus could not suffer. The Greek gods were all impassive to human emotions. But as we've been looking in the early part of Luke over past weeks at a Savior, at a a God-man who really could be tempted, who really grew and changed as a human boy, 
Here, too, Jesus, the adult man coming towards the cross, was not putting on a charade with pain. His pain was mental, it was emotional, it was spiritual, deepest of all, and it certainly was physical. And in the midst of it, he was so majestic. If you would say he glides through it, I don't mean that he did not suffer it, but he moves past it with the blood on his face as if that somehow made him more noble. You all know that various instances have occurred in the last 20 years as video cameras are everywhere in our society today, catching groups or individual policemen beating people. Maybe somebody just pulled over for a traffic offense and and a swarm of five policemen descend on him and start kicking him on the ground and beating him with nightsticks or maybe instances of Mexican illegal immigrants at the border or something like that. People just being brutalized and caught on tape. Well, this is the son of the highest God, not some alien who's not supposed to cross the boundary into our country, not somebody who perhaps uh, led cops on a speeding chase through the city and now knows he shouldn't have done that. This is God being punched and kicked by policemen not worthy of the badges that they wear. You have to wonder, the filmmakers have tried to depict it, not the antiseptic bathrobe Bible films of the 50s, but the more recent ones that have tried to really show the gore and the pain where the face of Jesus is all scarred and bloodied and bruises arising. And it was all exactly as Isaiah 52, 14 predicted that his appearance would be so marred beyond human resemblance. He wouldn't look human anymore. His form would be out, put out beyond that of the sons of men. How do we explain this? How do we explain schoolyard bullying? Why do students who might be on the honor list join in heaping abuse or, or words, maybe not their fists, but their words and their cruel speaking on another student who just looks different and is, is an outsider? Do we just dismiss this and say, well, this was an abnormal act by bored guards who wanted some, something to amuse themselves in their lives? I can't imagine you being an American that didn't hang your head low a number of years ago when the films and pictures of the Abu Ghraib prison were brought to light as American troops, the same troops we're so proud of and we pray for and we're glad they represent us and they are by and large honorable people. And yet it was our troops caught in sadistic, awful brutalization of prisoners in their charge. We say, what's gone wrong that people do that kind of thing? Well, the Bible will tell you what's gone wrong. People are captive to the twistedness of sin, which includes at its root cruelty and anger and animosity. The Bible says human beings are at enmity, first of all, against God, Romans 8, 7. Mankind is at enmity. They're angry with God. And when you cannot get at God, when you cannot box with God as you might like to, you will box with others in whom his image is found. 
One theologian says, if mankind could do it, what they really would want in their fundamental root of sin is to tear God to pieces. We can't get at him. We can't do that. He's too high above us, and so we've got to release that anger somewhere, and we release it on each other. And now it's Jesus, the omnipotent one, the co-creator of the world whom these thugs have in a corner, slapping him around. Can you even imagine if if somehow it could have come through to them who this was and what they were doing? Look in amazement as man slaps the face of God. And not fists only, but words they, they hurled at him. Prophesy. Oh, you're a prophet, huh? Well, let's put the blindfold on him and see if he can say which one of us hit him. When people can't hit God with their fists, they hit him with their words. Why do you think the name of God is cursed in every other sentence by some people today? It's come so much a part of their speech that they don't think about what they're doing or saying, but they're striking out at God. These soldiers, you see, thought Christ was helpless in their power. They were wrong. He was in their power because he willed himself to be there. And the marvel of this passage and others like it is the endurance of Jesus silently accepting this. Isaiah 50, he says, I gave my back to the smiters. I gave my cheeks to those who pull out my beard. I did not hide my face from the shame and the spitting. Believe me, when they said, who hit you? Jesus knew. Of course he knew. How splendid is his patient endurance? You know, one of the hardest things in pastoral ministry sometimes is to know how to minister to a person who's being abused, whether it's a wife whose husband is physically or verbally or emotionally brutalizing her. There's a tension there for the pastoral counselor because of wedding vows, because of, of, you know, we're supposed to be seeing that marriage built up. And do we say, well, just run, just get away? And yet certainly we're concerned about the safety and the well-being of such a person. There's every kind of concern for children who are abused in this world today, bullied by someone or sexually abused or manhandled by people in power over them. And there aren't easy solutions for that because quite often they are real captives in those situations. But I would say to anyone who's had abuse in their history, at the very least you need to know you have a royal companion in your abuse. Jesus took it all. He was a recipient of it all. I've been advising an individual not of our church who's in a situation of accusations brought against him of almost amazing nature, things that seem to me so inflated beyond what could be true, although, of course, there may be some germs of truth. And I've pointed this individual time after time to the master text on this subject, 1 Peter 2.23. I've said, would you memorize these verses and would you keep reminding yourself of these verses or this verse, 1 Peter 2.23 says, you may know, when they hurled their insults, 
he did not retaliate. When he suffered, he made no threats. He entrusted himself to the one who judges justly. That picture of Jesus is magnificent. It's not a snap easy solution to say, here's how to get out of abuse, how to get out of situations where others are cruelly having power over you, but it is saying to you, in the midst of it, trust yourself to the right person. Trust yourself to the one who judges justly and will, in the end, bring a just outcome. Divine majesty in abject misery. Well, let's go on and see quickly. Divine majesty, secondly, tried before human religion. After all, it was the temple and the priesthood that were in charge here. They did the arrest. Pilate didn't arrest Jesus. He lent some troops to it, but it was the initiative of the temple leaders that did it. Think of this. The temple and the priesthood were God-ordained institutions. God ordained the temple, a wonderful center for the worship place of Israel and the priesthood to humbly serve in it and bring the people before God and raise up their prayers and, and lead in their sacrifices and do all of these holy and privileged things. Now do you see it is temple priests and Bible scholars who not only stood by and did not lift a finger, but were actually smirking and smiling as the Son of God was being brutalized. Why was this so? Well, you go back quite a long time before this and find that this institution of God, the temple and the priesthood, had long ago been like a locomotive that had jumped off its tracks. And now it was an institution full of human rules, ecclesiastical pride, and political intrigue. And had a hundred and even thousands of minute laws that had nothing to do with what God had initiated or revealed. It was, in fact, almost entirely a man-made religion put over top of what God had made. And whenever you have a man-made religion, you soon are going to have demands directed towards God. You see, God created this institution, and then the temple and the priesthood proceeded to turn around and remake God in their image. That's what religion does. Caiaphas comes in here. If you are Christ, tell us in, in Matthew's version, he actually says to Jesus, I want you to swear by an oath whether you are the Christ. Give me an oath in God's name. This is what religion does. It tries to tell God what he can be and what he cannot be instead of thinking that first it ought to bow before him. And it always turns out that there's no more hopelessly closed mind than one closed by human religion. I'm not beating up on Judaism here. This is what every religion does. It has to remake God in its own image and therefore reject him and put him on trial if it's faced with the real God. In the third place, we see divine majesty revealed as God and then rejected. The prisoner finally spoke. They'd been demanding, tell us, tell us, tell us. And at first he said, well, I have told you. I've spoken it openly in the marketplaces, in the temple courts. You've had every opportunity to hear me. Why is it you don't know what I've been teaching? 
Now he takes a little variant on it, and Jesus speaks here. If I tell you, you won't believe me. If I attempt to convince you by proofs, you still won't let me go, no matter what proofs you would see. However, I will tell you this, and this was the zinger. From now on, you are going to see the Son of Man sitting at the right hand of power and coming on the clouds of heaven. They knew what he was talking about. They knew that he was saying, I am God's Messiah. Because those were the things that God's Messiah would do. Jesus was looking with his foresight down a future corridor past Calvary, past the resurrection, past even his ascension and day of Pentecost and the whole age of the church that we are in today, all the way to the day of his great return. And he was saying, I am the one who's going to be at God's right hand as final judge. There is not a shadow or a whisker of a question here, but that he was claiming to be God. I will be the occupant of God's throne. I will sit. Men don't sit at God's right hand. The Son of God sits at God's right hand. And Caiaphas understood, but he wanted one more stroke. Are you then the Son of God? I don't know in what tone Jesus said it, but you speak correctly, he said. And with that, they all thought, we've got him. The imposter has finally said the conclusive thing. What more do we need to hear? Case closed. He said he was God. Well, what did he do in saying that except tell you who he really was? And for that, he was convicted. And for that, he was killed. In Luke 22, the world of religious men and their vicious companions put God on trial and found him guilty of this, being God. That's what the death of Jesus was all about. They later trumped up a few more charges. Oh, we'll tell Caesar that he's a threat to Caesar and so on, so on. That was all just smoke and mirrors. Here was the charge for which Jesus was killed, for being God. Guilty, you are God, you have to die. And Isaiah 53, you see, saw all this coming. Please go and read Isaiah 52 and 53 sometime this week. Rehearse those wonderful prophecies which, if they alone of all the Old Testament existed and were laid beside the new, would give you the veracity you need, the authenticity for the Word of God. Isaiah said, He was led like a sheep to the slaughter, and as a lamb before its shearers is silent, and did not open his mouth. By oppression and judgment he was taken away. For the transgression of my people he was stricken. And then this wonderful sentence. All of that, all of that rejection, all of that abuse, violence, sneering. But then this. Yet the will of the Lord will prosper in his hand. In other words, who won at Calvary? Who won? The victim did. The condemned man, condemned to be God, won. Well, the trial of God goes on. You mix and mingle every day in your life where you work with your neighbors, with your friends and relatives, with people who may not ever come out and say it. In fact, they'd be shocked if you ever suggested this to them. 
but they have put God on trial and they have condemned him. There's nothing more to be decided as far as they're concerned. He's either a myth, a fairy tale, a children's story, or they have far worse things to say about him and will say it with a curse. But you see, God remains on trial any time a man or a woman or a boy or a girl stops in their life and considers him. Could he really be the Savior of the world? Do I really have to make up my mind? Oh, oh no. Well, I, these preachers, they have a way of catching you with their emotional speeches. I, I'll put that aside. You know, I'll take the Scarlett O'Hara approach. I'll think about that tomorrow. But let me tell you, if you're procrastinating in deciding about him as Savior and God, that's a decision in and of itself, and it's a negative decision. Whether you want him to or not, one day Jesus Christ will judge you. He'll do exactly what he said to Caiaphas. He will be the Son of Man sitting at the right hand of power coming in the clouds of heaven, and you will face him. Laugh at it now. You won't be laughing then. He will be your judge. But right now, he gives you the opportunity to say, have I given you enough evidence? Is my rising from the dead and working in power in the lives of dispirited disciples who were ready to cut and run and get out of Jerusalem and go back to their fishing nets, and they turned around and became men of courage who turned the world upside down? Does that any kind of evidence to you that, that there's something real here? That this is the power of God? There are people who would label Caiaphas as one of the most evil men in all the world because he really was the, right at the center of the conspiracy that killed Jesus. They, oh, man, what an evil man Caiaphas is. Well, let me tell you this. If you reach the kind of verdict about Jesus that Caiaphas reached, you're probably a worse kind of fool than he is because you have so much more evidence piled up of who Jesus really is. I think of another atheist. I mentioned Dawkins. Sir Bertrand Russell comes up all the time as one of the 20th century's greatest, most outspoken, most eloquent atheists. And, and his great claim was when they said they ignited him for his great intellectual contributions, Sir Bertrand, if by chance you are mistaken and you face God after you die, which he did a long time ago, by the way, what will you say to God? And Russell just glibly shot back, I will tell him he did not leave me sufficient evidence. What a condemning thing to say. The evidence is higher than a mountain. And the real blasphemer is the one who spits in the face of God today and says, you didn't give me the information I needed to process. Ladies and gentlemen, Jesus was blindfolded so that you would see for the first time. His face was covered with bruises so that the beauty of the image of God could be restored in you as he remakes you as his new creation. He was bruised for our iniquities. The punishment of our peace was laid on him. By his stripes, we were healed, healed of sin, healed of death. Have you reached a verdict what are you waiting for? Do you really think you're going to find out something new, something you still have to know that might influence your decision? Is Jesus Christ the Son of God, the co-equal of God? 
when you can believe in him in this scene, looking at him, covered with blood, covered with bruises, bent down, knocked to the floor, being struck with fists and boots, when you can believe there is the Son of God, let me tell you, that's when faith is born in you. When you can say, behold, my God, in this situation, then he does his new work in you, and you become one of his. It was for you that the king of glory became the king of scorn. It was for you that he was covered with shame. So you could come and lay your life down at his feet and receive from him a robe of perfect righteousness. He stood condemned. So this could be said about you, what Paul wrote in Romans. There is therefore now no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus. God, the Son, was convicted and condemned of being God for you. Case closed. Render your verdict. And God our Father, I pray that this Easter would not pass without someone who has dallied over this thing, thought about Christ, wondered about him, but somehow stopping short of bowing to him and saying, Lord God, if this indeed is your son doing this for me, I want him to be king and captain of my life. I bow low before him, and I believe he sits on your throne today, rule over my life in the power of Jesus, and give me his salvation. May some come to the wonderful discovery that this will bring. We pray for your glory in Jesus' name. Amen.